0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia. Also on the web at gracebible.faith. That is gracebible.faith. Okay, we're getting close to the end of our Old Testament survey class. Uh, Matt started the 12 last week. I'm going to teach Daniel today, which is not part of the 12. Actually, not even part of the prophets in the Hebrew canon. It is in our English canon. And then Matt will do at least two more on the 12, maybe three. And then I'm going to have one kind of big review of our class on Old Testament survey. And what I want to go ahead and put in your mind now is to start thinking through, remember what the aim of our survey class was to help you get a better feel for the storyline of the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. So I'd like for you to write out the storyline. I'm not talking about a long thing, limit to one page or less, half a page. But just in your own mind, and especially in light of what we've done in the class, think through and write out a concise storyline of the Old Testament. Think of it in terms of, at, at minimum, law, former prophets, latter prophets. You can think of it in the same way as the Hebrew canon. I just said the former because that's the way our English Bibles are laid out. Law, historical books, prophets, uh, but try to do that, and you know, you don't necessarily have to start on it this week, because you might want to wait until Matt finishes, but start giving it some thought and putting some words down, and you're really doing this for your own, I'm not going to collect them or grade them, anything like that, but I think it would be a really helpful exercise to you. Daniel, to me, is a great book. It's one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's an easier prophet to understand. One, because it's only 12 chapters long. Uh, If you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with the book, at least from the stories of Daniel and Lion's Den and Three Friends in the Fiery Furnace. But it's a very important book for understanding the plan of God as it runs from Daniel's own day all the way down to the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, it's not clear in Daniel that there's two separate comings, but that's become clear to us, right? We, from where we stand, we know that Christ came the first time. He, his offer of the kingdom was rejected, and eventually he died. He died for sin. Uh, he died to conquer sin and death. He died in order to make atonement for sin, and Daniel does speak about that. But it's his second coming now, That will fulfill the things most of the things that are prophesied in daniel i want you to listen to the words of christ in his olivet discourse now this was after it clear that it was clear that he not only was going to be rejected by the israel's leaders but also was going to be put to death by them this was the week of his crucifixion and he's starting to prepare his disciples for his second coming and for the great tribulation that will precede that. Now, that's another theme that's very dominant in the Old Testament. It's called the day of the Lord there. But he prepares them for it in the Olivet Discourse. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 21, beginning verse 23. Woe to those who are with child and those who nurse babes in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. It is that times of the Gentiles that Daniel is dealing with. It's a dominant theme. The series of Gentile kingdoms, again, from Daniel's day down to the the coming of Christ to abolish all those previous Gentile kingdoms and to establish his own this is a sketch that we've used before I think I find it really helpful for understanding at least from second Samuel uh, through the return books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther we have a, a United Kingdom for the most part under Saul David and Solomon that splits because of Solomon's sin in 931 BC where he violated the very things that the kings weren't supposed to do you know he multiplied wives, he multiplied horses, he multiplied silver. And the kingdom divided into north and south, ten tribes to the north, two to the south. It was that southern line that was the Davidic line. Every king that came through the southern kingdom was a descendant of David. Its capital remained in Jerusalem. There were a few bright spots, but like the northern kingdom that went into captivity in 722 BC, the southern kingdom is going to do the same thing. but it, got, it does so in three stages. 605 BC is when Daniel and his three friends and others were taken captive. They come back later in 597 BC, and that's when Ezekiel and 10,000 others were taken captive into Babylon. And then the final destruction of Jerusalem is in 586 BC. So, three stages of captivity. How long would that captivity last, according to the prophet Jeremiah? 70 years that clock starts at 605 bc when daniel was taken captive because that was the first phase of the captivity in fact we're going to read later that daniel was reading jeremiah in daniel chapter 9 and he knew the 70 years were about to finish and he starts praying accordingly but just as there were three stages to the captivity there were also three stages of return back to the land right we had the decree by cyrus In 538 B.C. that allowed them to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And then you had three stages of, of return under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. So that just gives you a little bit of a framework for when Daniel is placed in all this. Matt has this chart that I just added on to. It's a really good chart that shows where the prophets were, and the extent of their ministries you see the timeline at the bottom and the prophets that are color-coded as to when they ministered daniels was a long and successful ministry he was taken captive as a teenager around 605 bc and ministered first in the babylonian kingdom and then in the medo persian kingdom up until his 80s he's one of those rare individuals about whom there's nothing negative in scripture The book of Daniel itself says several times that he was a man who was highly esteemed by God. And then we have this from the book of Ezekiel, uh, who would have been one of his contemporaries. Ezekiel chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, and send famine against it, and cut off from it both man and beast even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declares the Lord God. So he's in pretty heady company there. And I would argue that of those three, Daniel is the one that probably has the best reputation of them all. So I want to give a little bit of geographical and historical background. you know, we, we have the background of this class, as far as our walking through the Old Testament, understanding that God called Israel. He gave them his law. He, he entered into covenant with them. And yet, from the very beginning, uh, they broke covenant with God and did throughout their history. And in fact, uh, things just continue to get worse. God told them what would happen when they broke covenant with him. But this passage in 2 Chronicles 36 describes the flagrant immorality and sin of God's people. Even after they had committed, you know, they had broken covenant with God, what did God do? He sent prophets to try to call them back to covenant loyalty. And what did they do? This passage tells us, they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Despite decades of solemn warning by Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and many other faithful prophets, this kind of behavior finally brought about the total destruction of Jerusalem and the Temple. Again, a destruction that God had warned them about since the time of Moses, all the way back to the law. The covenant people had at last been been expelled from their promised land and their holy city and were condemned to captivity and enslavement in a foreign land. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, who was not yet king of Babylon, Nabopolassar was still the king, still on the throne, and Nebuchadnezzar was the general of the army. He went to battle in a city called Carchemish against the Egyptians. Egypt was defeated, city of Carchemish was destroyed, And what he did was pursue the Egyptians as they fled down through Syria and down through the Promised Land. He just wanted to make sure he got rid of as much of the army as he could. And then as he made his way back north, he stopped in Jerusalem and laid siege to it. It was here that he plundered the temple. He took a number of the young men, including Daniel and his three friends, and took them captive back to Babylon. This is what we read about in the opening of Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim king of Judah Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand along with some of the vessels of the house of God he brought them to the land of Shinar which is another name for Babylon to the house of his God and what was the implication there by their plundering the temple in Jerusalem bringing back and putting those vessels into their temple, what were they saying? Their God was more powerful than the God of Israel. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. And then down in verse 6 it says, Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now what... What is he bringing these young men into captivity for? What's he going to do with them? them. To do what? Okay, to be his servants, to lead in his kingdom. I mean, these are talented young men. They're going to have to incorporate a lot more Jews into captivity. And what is his method for training them? Okay. okay, so he, he cuts them off from their past. He changes their names. They're young enough to where they can be trained in the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonian kingdom. And he's doing this to make them leaders in his kingdom. It's really a smart move on his part. Uh, as Isaiah mentions he part of that move was to even give him give them food from his table Now that would incur a sense of obligation to the king not everybody was going to get to eat from the king's table and Motivate them to do what he wanted them to do now. We learn in chapter 1 that Daniel's not willing to do that He says he's not willing to defile himself now it doesn't sound like, from what the little brief description that we have of what he's being offered to eat, that there was anything unclean there necessarily, what would have possibly been a defilement for him to eat that food? Could, could have been offered to idols, exactly. So he, one of the things that strikes me about Daniel is how respectful he is. Even when he's in a very difficult situation where he has to approach... Either the king or one of his officials, he always holds them in very high regard. So he approaches the guy that's supervising them and says, look, uh, you can just feed us vegetables and water and we'll be fine. We don't need the king's food. And the supervisor's initially hesitant to do that because he doesn't want them to look less in appearance or you know, not prosper as well as they're being trained. This is a three-year training program. But he's willing to, to try it for a while. And what's the result? It says, At the end of ten days, this is in verse 15 of chapter 1, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Now, might have been more than just what was being eaten there that was part of that. I'm sure God was prospering them at the same time. He goes on to say, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. He's going to become part of this coterie of wise men that every king had to help advise the king, especially on visions and dreams, but on other matters as well. At the end of days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar, the king talked with them, Out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So it wasn't just Daniel, but his three friends were also held in high regard. And they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. So... Before we get into more of the book, I want us to think a little bit about the city of Babylon. It was a tremendous city in its day. It was the capital of the kingdom of Babylon. You can see from this kind of floor plan that it was hard on the Euphrates River. And in fact, they had diverted the river for a moat around walls that were already very secure, double walls, very wide. The city was known by its walls, especially in that day. You can see the temple tower and the marduk temple located inside here the hanging gardens of babylon was considered one of the seven wonders of the world Um, each one of the gates that punctuated the walls were very ornate i'll show you some pictures of that and keep in mind this moat and the way the city is diverted around the wall i'm sorry the river is diverted around the city walls because that's gonna come into play when we get to chapter five. Here's an artist's rendering of what it would be like looking into the North Gate. Is anybody familiar with the hanging gardens of Babylon? What what's the story behind them? We got some people that have been studying that by chance. The king say it, Melissa, or Elsie. Exactly. The king built this for his wife. Uh, it's terraced, and it had all kinds of vegetation from her homeland. My understanding is it actually had an ancient form of air conditioning. Somehow they had a natural draft system. But it's quite impressive. You can see the winged lion there. Again, this is the artist's rendering. We don't have um, photographs from that day. But that winged lion was an actual symbol of the kingdom of Babylon. You can see the, the towers in the background and then the Euphrates River running through. So this is looking into the city through one of the north gates. This is a mock-up of what the gate itself would have looked like. This is in the British Museum. You can see very ornate walls. Uh, just extremely impressive city. And then if you go to well, what Babylon is in what modern day country? Iraq. If you go there today, the walls are still standing, at least ruins of those walls. And you can see those same uh, figures that are in relief against the walls. And they have that as part of their cultural heritage, the people of Iraq. When uh, Saddam Hussein was in power, his mission was basically to restore the, the former glory of their country to the days of the Babylonian kingdom. And he would refer back to Nebuchadnezzar in that sense. I personally believe that when the book of Revelation talks about Babylon as being the headquarters of the false Christ, it's talking about real Babylon. You know, that's disputed. Other people think it's other cities and that's, you know, uh, symbolic or metaphorical. But you look at the this area has a long history in the Bible, all the way going back, going all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And uh, I realize that a lot has to happen before It would become a headquarters of world power. But that's what the book of Revelation describes. And it even mentions the Euphrates River, which really ties it down. This is from a book that I would highly recommend to you just for summarizing every Bible book. It's called Nelson's Complete Book of Bible Maps and Charts. It really helps you get a good feel for the book like we're doing in a survey setting. It basically divides the book of Daniel up into three sections The history of Daniel we've already gone over in chapter 1. The prophetic plan for these Gentile kingdoms in chapters 2 through 7. That part of the book is in Aramaic. You can see that down here. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Hebrew. And that's appropriate because Aramaic would have been the lingua franca of Babylonian and the Persian kingdom to follow. And it was important that the messages that are in that section of the book go out to all the nations, not just to Israel. We'll go over, uh, we'll look at an outline itself and, and go over this section from that outline. But again, we're talking about two different locations or two different kingdoms that Daniel served in, Babylon and Persia from 605 to 536 B.C. Another way to think about the book is really in two halves. Daniel 1 through 6 are inspiring stories in which Daniel and his three friends, again, teenage boys when they were taken into captivity, they're in pagan courts, and they succeed in various difficult circumstances. Why? Due to the power and knowledge of their God and their tremendous faith in God. And then chapter 7 through 12 are visions and prayers of Daniel, Followed by explanations from an angelic being a messenger sent by God. You know, in chapters 2 through 4, we have visions of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel interprets. And then in chapters 7 through 12, we have visions given directly to Daniel that an angel helps him interpret or understand. So let's look look at it in just a standard outline form. Historical settings provided for us in chapter one, we've gone through that with the captivity of Jerusalem, uh, Daniel and his three friends being prepared for special training, their commitment not to defile themselves, and their resultant in elevation into the court of Nebuchadnezzar. In chapters two through seven, we have these first, in two and four, we have dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. Three is not actually a dream. But chapter 2 is a dream of a step of, well, we related some of this when we read the scripture reading earlier this morning. It's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. He wants his wise men not only to interpret the dream, but actually tell him what the dream was. He suspects that they're not being straight with him. So they're not able to do that. Uh, They start to kill the wise men. Daniel and his three friends pray to God and... Uh, God reveals not only interpretation, but the dream itself. And it's a statue, and we'll show a picture of it in just a little bit, that represents four Gentile kingdoms. The head of gold represents Babylon. The middle section or the shoulders and arms of silver represents the kingdom of Medo-Persia. Lower than that is the bronze section of Greece. And then below that is a kingdom made up of both iron, and the feet are made of iron and clay, and that's the Roman Empire. So that vision is given to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel comes in and helps him understand what's going to take place over the course of those days. And we'll look at that in more detail in just a little bit. Chapter 3, what happens in Chapter 3? You can look, There's, they're in the plain of Dura. It's the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar first sets up this very tall, thin image. Some people say, well, perhaps it's connected to the dream of the statue in chapter two. Some say no, the proportions aren't right at all, but it's, it's like 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. So it's very uh, like an obelisk. It could be something like that. Regardless of what the statue or what the image was made of, the point was he wanted absolute obedience and submission by all of his kingdom to his decrees. And everybody that came and assembled in that plain of Dura was to bow down to that image. And in essence, bow down to Nebuchadnezzar through that. And everybody did, with the exception of Daniel's three friends. They refused to bow down. And in all likelihood, the fiery furnace was probably built into the side of one of the mountains that surrounded that plain. They knew what the penalty was going to be. They could see the smoke billowing out of the furnace. And and yet, what did they do? Let's read about it. This is in chapter 3. Let's look at verse starting in verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? If you're ready at the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made very well. They've already had one chance, they refused. He's given them one more chance. If you will not worship, you'll immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Pretty bold talk. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, and I love this, I love their attitude. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That really bothers Nebuchadnezzar. He gets very angry. And what does he do? He heats the furnace up seven times hotter than he normally would, even to the point where the guy's that were responsible for heating it up, die from the heat of the fire. They tie the men up in their clothes, they take them up, they throw them in the furnace. And Nebuchadnezzar quickly notices there's not just the three guys, but there's somebody else in there, like a son of the gods. I think that was Christ in his pre-incarnate form. Could have been, some people would argue, there's just a regular angel. But they come out of there without a hair singed, without even the smell of smoke on their clothes. I mean, it is some kind of supernatural delivery. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Verse 28, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Now, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar Becomes a believer at this point, but I think he does acknowledge the power of these men and their God. I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. So I don't think he had yet become a believer. I think he has by the time of chapter 4. Chapter 4 is another vision given to Nebuchadnezzar in which uh, there's this mighty tree that grows to great fullness. The birds of the air nest in its branches. The beasts of the field take shade under it. It's cut down. Only a stump is preserved and a band of metal is put around that stump. And again, Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar calls in Daniel to help him understand the vision. And, and when Daniel does understand it himself, he's greatly shaken because of his great respect for Nebuchadnezzar. He wished this would be uh, put on someone else rather than him. But the meaning of the dream is that Nebuchadnezzar, as king, was going to be taken down um, for a period of seven periods of time, likely seven years. And then the meaning of the stump being preserved was that his, his kingdom wasn't going to be completely taken away from him. He would end up being driven into the field and become like a beast of the field. He would be humbled in this process. And that was the whole point, was that for him to recognize that God is the true king of the universe not him, and that he, again, takes up, sets up kings and takes them down again according to his own good pleasure. And we see in Daniel 4, verse 34, that he, he does come to recognize this. At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, and I think Nebuchadnezzar wrote this chapter in Daniel, chapter 4, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. That is as good a theology as you can get. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? All right. We move to chapter 5, and we see the, doom, the debacle and doom of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, likely his grandson. He was in the castle, in the palace, having this great party with a thousand of his nobles. And the medial Persians were on his doorstep. And some history shows, or there's a tradition that says, that they knew that they were out there, but they felt like their city was so invincible that they weren't worried about them. And while they're in there basically snubbing the God of Israel by drinking from the vessels that had been plundered uh, from the temple, this hand appears uh, supernaturally and writes an inscription on the wall. And once again, uh, the wise men are unable to read or interpret it, and it says in verse 10 of chapter 5, the queen entered the banquet. Now, this is not queen, wife of Belshazzar. It's likely a, like a queen mother that was either a surviving wife, probably a surviving wife of Nebuchadnezzar. She entered that banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your th- thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, chaldeans, and diviners. She knew about Daniel. Evidently, Belshazzar did not. So she brought him to his attention. He comes in and interprets the writing. The inscription read Mane Mane Tekel Upharsin which basically means numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You've been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. And then Belshazzar gave orders. They clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck, issued a proclamation concerning him that now that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. That was the initial promise for anybody who could interpret the writing. That same night, Belshazzar the king was slain. And again, what tradition says was, if you think back to that initial plan that we put up with the city, they diverted the river again so that it got low enough under the gate where they could sneak under with just a few men and got, they were completely caught off guard. And the king was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. All right, for the second time, I'm really going to summarize Daniel 6. It's a story that you're very familiar with. Darius the king got hoodwinked by his servants who were out to get Daniel. You can imagine that they didn't appreciate these Jews as foreigners coming in and ruling over them. So they wanted to try to find some way that they could get dirt on Daniel. And it says the only way they could get it on him was by finding something with regard to his faithfulness to his God. It's a pretty strong commendation. They come up with an order that says you can only make petition to Darius And nobody else It's given the official sign of the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And anybody who, refu- or who violates that order is to be thrown in the lion's den. Daniel recognizing that the order had been signed and sealed uh, continued doing what he'd always been doing three times a day he faced toward Jerusalem and made petition there they rat him out they come to the king the king indeed does throw him into the lion's den and the king was very upset he tried everything he could to figure out a way to get Daniel out of that position but he had to abide by the decree that he himself had written so the next day, he runs to the den. He cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I have been found innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime king very hurriedly got Daniel out of the den and threw those that had accused Daniel along with their children into the lion's den and before they could even get to the ground the lions overpowered and crushed all their bones the end of six and we see this as a consistent uh, happening in the book is a pagan king proclaiming the God of Israel and putting him Uh, out to the nations. Darius the king wrote to all the people's nations and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. He is the living God and enduring forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions." Daniel, you know, he's about 80 years old by the time he's cast into the lion's den. So now we begin a new section. uh, Well, we begin with uh, a dream to Daniel in chapter 7, which parallels the dream to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter (coughs) 2. Bless you. And in this last section, After the times of the Gentiles have been described in 2 through 7, we now have the prophetic history of Israel through desolation to deliverance. And I want to use a diagram here that I've taken out of my study Bible. I use an international inductive study Bible. I think this is a very helpful diagram, and it starts with the vision in Daniel chapter 2 of this uh, statue with the head of gold and the arms and shoulders of silver, the thorax of, Greek, of bronze, and the legs and feet of iron and clay, representative of the succeeding Gentile kingdoms. What happens this giant stone cut out without hands smashes the feet, but it really destroys the whole statue. And that's emblematic of the fact that when Christ comes, who's in, who's in power when Christ returns? Say it loud. The Antichrist. And, you know, reading from Daniel, it seems like there's a connection with the Roman Empire. Now, you see this area right here. That's going to become more clear as we unfold the picture. We know the historical Roman Empire has already passed off the stage, but it seems like there's some connection. The ten toes represent ten kings, and the Antichrist is going to subdue three of those kings. He's going to come to power His kingdom is the one that's smashed when Christ returns. But keep in mind that every succeeding kingdom or every preceding kingdom is amalgamated into the next one. And so when the destruction of the Antichrist kingdom happens when Christ returns, all those others are done away with. And Christ's kingdom is never replaced by anybody. There is a a revolt against Christ at the end of the millennium, but it's... uh, unsuccessful and doesn't replace the kingdom so chapter two is foundational Uh, understanding those that dream and what those what that statue represents is key to understanding the rest of the book chapter seven reveals that same dream to daniel the content is the same but this time it's uh, with beast instead of with a statue you have the winged lion that represents babylon you have Medo-Persia represented by a big lumbering bear. And that was appropriate because Medo-Persia just outmanned people. They, they overcame people by sheer force of numbers. And you, you know, there's two different countries that came together to form that empire. We have a winged leopard with four heads. What would a winged leopard represent? What's the first thing that you think about when you hear that? Very, very swift. Leopard's fast enough. This one has wings. And which empire does it represent? Greece. Greece. And who do we know that headed the Grecian Empire? Alexander the Great. I mean, this was a guy that took the throne at 20 years old. He'd been tutored by Aristotle. A year and a half later, he attacks Medo-Persia. And by the 30, by the age of 32... He's conquered everything and dies. He dies at a very young age. The four heads of the leopard represent the four generals. There wasn't a king after Alexander the Great, but his kingdom was parceled out to four generals, and we'll learn more about them a little later. And then finally we have this beast that's unlike any other that Daniel had seen. It had ten horns. It had... uh, Teeth of iron and claws of bronze. And that represents the kingdom of the Antichrist. There's a very clear connection between this beast and Daniel chapter 17. And if, just as a teaser, we're going to look at that in more detail Wednesday night. If you're back here on Wednesday, uh, that's when we'll look at it. But again, that kingdom is given over to one like a son of man, it says. And uh, this is in Daniel chapter 7. Let's read that. This is Daniel speaking. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Does that remind you of anything, any other scene, particularly in the book of Revelation? It's the throne room scene of Revelation 4 and 5 where the slain lamb is presented before the father on his throne. Of course, son of man was a title that Jesus used very often of himself, particularly in Luke's gospel. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So again, the, the same concept, the same revelation, but just communicated in a different form. Next is Daniel chapter 8, which builds on and gives more detail of the Medo-Persian and Grecian conflict. Medo-Persia arose as the, the ram with two horns and Greece arose as a shaggy goat with one horn, who was Alexander the Great, but it builds on the earlier uh, dreams in chapter two and seven. Won't go into that in any more detail than that. Chapter nine provides us with a timeline. Daniel's reading the book of Jeremiah. He realizes the 70 years of captivity that was predicted by Jeremiah is about to come to an end. He begins to pray. He confesses Israel's sin, He prays for the restoration of Israel, and an angel comes and says, hey, it's not going to be 70 years, but 77ths of years by implication. So 490 years, and those are divided into 69, well, really into um, 7 and 62, which makes 69, and the 70th year that's set off separately. We'll look at another diagram on it. In just a minute 10 through 12 is really read as one unit this is again detail that's given about the interaction between the four generals that take over after Alexander the Great and their interaction uh, amongst each other chapter 11 to me is the hardest chapter in the book to follow because it's one that we don't probably don't have a lot of background with uh, beforehand but uh, all the rest of them are pretty clear-cut, pretty easy to understand as you, as you read earlier in the book to later in the book. But chapter 11 also describes Antiochus Epiphanes. And I'll show you a chart on it in just a minute. But Antiochus Epiphanes uh, serves as a prototype of the future false Christ. And there's a certain point in chapter 11 that it moves from what is to us historical antiochus epiphanies to future antichrist and the way that we know that is when we get to chapter 12 it starts talking about the tribulation and resurrection chapter 12 verse one at that time michael the great prince who stands guard at the sons of your people michael the archangel that is will arise there'll be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time and at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. So that's going out into the future. Uh, and this is concluding a section that began back in verse 36, where it moves from the interaction between the, P- the Ptolemies and the Seleucids to this future king, this future false Christ. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt and those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever so just one more uh, chart here these are the four generals that took over the kingdom of greece after alexander the great died and two of those the ptolemies and the seleucids interact with each other over the This is what's described in chapter 11. They have marriage, intermarriage between these two descendants, these two kingdoms. There's war that takes place between them. But Antiochus Epiphanes comes out uh, from the Seleucids, and he ruled from 175 to 163 B.C. If you read chapter 11, it talks about how much he hated the Jewish people, how much he persecuted them. And, again, that serves as a prototype, for what the false Christ will do at the very end before Christ returns. All right. I want us to look briefly at the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Uh, Let me read that first and then we'll, we'll diagram it out. 77s have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity. Now, you can... Certainly, we can make the case that Christ did that, at least provided the basis for that at his first coming. But really, all these are not fully accomplished until he comes the second time. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, that is to, in essence, do away with it. He fulfills all vision and prophecy. He's on the earth. There's no more need for it. And to anoint the most holy place, that is a future temple the holy of holies so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the prince there will be 7 weeks and 62 weeks it will be built again talking about the city with plaza and moat even in times of distress then after the 62 weeks the messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood, even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. He, that is, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, and in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction One is the, that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. There's been a lot of good study that's been done on this prophecy. And not complete agreement as to what it means. But I think the best interpretation is to see the initial point as the decree by Artaxerxes to rebuild Jerusalem in 444 BC. That's a pretty well-established date. The major thrust of Daniel 9 is the 69 weeks after that, but it is divided into 7 and 62. And many people conjecture that the the end of the 49 years refers to the completion of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But at the end of... If you do the calculations from the date of that decree all the way down to the time of Christ, it says until Messiah the Prince... That date is calculated right till the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Two things happen after that. What are they? Messiah is cut off, which happens within a week of his triumphal entry. and Jerusalem is destroyed, which takes a little longer, right? Uh, Jesus was crucified in approximately 30 A.D. It's another 40 years before Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. And then it separates off that 70th week. That is one period of seven years. Prince of the people to come, who is the false Christ, makes a firm covenant. He's on the scene here at the very beginning. And somehow he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel to allow them to restore their system of worship. Like Antiochus, he's very deceitful, and he seems like he's in favor of Israel. But halfway through the week is where the abomination of desolation appears. And he breaks that covenant. Uh, he pull, puts a stop to sacrifice and offering halfway through the week. Now, let's look at that last week in a little more detail. This is a week that's divided into two halves with the abomination and desolation being the midway point. And we're, we're dealing with prophetic years or biblical years, 360 days. Three and a half and a half years would be 1260 days this is the week that's first predicted in daniel chapter 9 but it's also the one that christ is talking about in his olivet discourse first half is called the beginning of birth pangs and it corresponds to the first six seals of the seven sealed scroll in the book of revelation things are bad here but they're going to get worse abomination of desolation is referred to in daniel nine twenty-seven and matthew 24 15. It marks the halfway point. And this is the point at which the Antichrist reaches full power. Uh, The kingdoms of the world are given over to him by God, and he reigns on the earth for three and a half years. This is the period of the Great Tribulation with the outpouring of the trumpet and bold judgments. Uh, The Antichrist is given authority to act for a period of 42 months or 1,260 days. And so he's in power at the end of this time, when Christ returns to the earth, and defeats him, uh, casts the false prophet and the and the beast into the fire, and then ultimately Satan himself at the end of the millennium. Daniel in the New Testament is it's really important and helpful to study Daniel before you study the book of Revelation, but it, Daniel is what provides the big picture from Daniel's day all the way down to the establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth. Some of that plan is fulfilled within the book itself. By the time of Christ, four of the Gentile empires predicted in Daniel had already come. Now, he's in the midst of the Roman empires. He comes to the earth, but all the others had already come and gone. As we said, his discourse on the Mount of Olives Christ sketches out the events of the 70th week of Daniel 9. And the book of Revelation provides the greatest detail of that week and the events leading up to Christ's return and the establishment of his kingdom. What are other major themes? We're almost finished. What would you say are the major themes in the book of Daniel. Kingdoms, Gentile kingdoms, and the kingdom of Christ. Sovereignty of God over those kingdoms. Exactly, sovereignty of God over all the kingdoms of the of the world, and this you know this great plan of redemption that He has, that began all the way back in Genesis. Certainly in Genesis twelve, you can make a case for it being earlier than that. Any others? where I put them, the ones I have up here? You think, um, I think of the faithfulness of Daniel and his friends. I don't know how to that. No, that's very good. The faithfulness of Daniel and his friends are a major theme of the book and really inspiring examples to us. We're not likely to face a fiery furnace. At least it doesn't seem that way right now. But uh, they, they did that with such great confidence in their God and they weren't worried about dying. Okay, y'all done well. Sovereignty of God over the kingdoms of man, Israel as a remnant subject to the Gentiles. Again, that was anticipated all the way back in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 through 30. The progression of Gentile kingdoms. What's fascinating to me is if you can go to Encyclopedia Britannica or on the internet, some secular source, and see that this is exactly the way that they document Gentile kingdoms in history. And this was all laid out in the scripture what, way before it happened. Fourth kingdom is the greatest, out of which one will come who exalts himself against God. Again, that's what Antiochus Epiphanes did in 165 B.C. And that's what the Antichrist will do as well. The pride of the Gentile kings... That's very clear by the way that they act. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and came to know, I believe, the the living God. But their pride against God and against his people is clear. These kings also believed that their gods were stronger than the God of Israel. And God does things to correct the situation and demonstrate that he alone is the true God. God's going to make sure that the whole world knows that he's the only God. And in fact, that's a theme, too. Proclamation of the true God throughout the nations. The ultimate establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. I can't emphasize that enough. A lot of people say, no, we're not to expect a literal earthly kingdom in the future. Well, all those other kingdoms were earthly. When Christ establishes his kingdom, he returns to the earth to defeat the Antichrist. It's not a kingdom in heaven. It's a kingdom from heaven. That's what the significance of the stone cut out without hands is. Summarize all this in a purpose statement for Daniel. It provides a panoramic sweep of human history during Gentile domination from Daniel's own day until the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth. Now, I didn't really point this out when we looked at that diagram, that picture, but there's a gap of time between the Roman Empire as we know it historically and the 69 weeks that have already passed and this future 70th week. We're living in that gap right now. And we can look back and see the fulfillment of prophecy that has already happened. And we can look forward in anticipation to Christ's return with the same certainty, same confidence. All right. Next week, Matt, will be back and we'll resume our study of the 12, and then, like I said, at least two weeks down the road, well, it'll be at least three weeks, I'm going to do one final review of kind of what we've covered in the Old Testament survey, and I just encourage you to take some time to to write out summary for yourself. Writing is a good way to clarify your own thinking, and I hope you'll take opportunity to do that. I will review some more uh, Wednesday night. In Daniel so if you have questions we'll hold them till then and uh, that'll be a good time for us to address those all right been a good morning together let's pray and we'll be dismissed father we do thank you for the book of Daniel we thank you for his example and those of his friends young men who had strong convictions and knew their God and knew your word, and we're committed to be obedient to it. And we pray that you would help us in, in that, to be the same kind of obedient, to be committed to you, knowing what the future is, knowing that even if we were to die for our faith, we would be in the presence of Christ. We thank you for giving us revelation. We live in a world today that's full of turmoil, as it has been throughout history for so many different reasons. And yet we can live with peace and with confidence, knowing where all of this is headed, looking at the past fulfillment of Gentile kingdoms, recognizing that there's going to be a day where Christ comes to return, to rule not only over the nation of Israel as their king, as he was appointed to be, but also over the entire world. And we in the church will rule and reign with him. We look forward to that. We pray that you would help us continue to sanctify us, grow us in truth, so that we'll be ready for that day and ready for that role. And we'll be uh, hearing the words of Christ. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Thank you for the time we've had together this morning. Thank you for the opportunity we had to celebrate and be reminded of Christ's great sacrifice on our behalf. Help us to walk worthy of the gospel this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.